Patrick Henningsen Talks on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT, today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Thank you so much for rejoining us for the second hour of this live broadcast. Thank you, everybody, for rejoining us. Now, before the break, I, I hinted at what we'll be talking about for the next two hours, actually, hour two and three. We're going to be focusing on the issue of climate change, a.k.a. anthropogenic global warming, a.k.a. global warming, was rebranded, officially rebranded probably around 2006. Uh, global warming just wasn't doing it. So they had to kind of broaden the definition of their crisis, the branding of the crisis, and call it climate change. It's much more ubiquitous, much more arbitrary, vague enough that you can project anything you want, fit anything into that big package called climate change. And of course, this is the time of year when the rhetoric really ramps up. Obviously, you got the music festivals going on. I think Greta Thunberg took her uh, helicopter or however she got there. She might have sailed to Britain from Sweden. However, I don't think so. Anyway, she appeared at Glastonbury. This is the premier music festival uh, in Britain, maybe in Europe. And uh, she gave a speech about climate change. It was a surprise cameo. Uh, truth be known, Greta, 19 years old, didn't have a normal childhood. Uh, she probably just wanted to hang around in muddy fields. And who could blame her? She's been through a lot. Her parents have put her through a lot. Greenpeace uh, has put her through a lot over the last couple of years, having to tour the world, shouting and berating populations. How dare you? How dare you? Stole my childhood. And now I'm hanging out in a field at Glastonbury with a bunch of woke, well, 100,000 or so woke punters, 150,000 woke punters uh, in Pilton Fields. And uh, her, her main message was interesting. She, she said, Greta said, what I want you to go away with is I want you I want you to repeat everything I'm telling you, and you need to you need to repeat it at school, in public, at at at, uh, at work, at the workplace, in line at the deli. She didn't leave anything out. Basically, every single possible human interaction opportunity, Greta says you need to we need to talk and repeat the truth about the climate crisis. And so the truth is what she's telling you apparently, or she's repeating what's being told by the globalist oracles like the IPCC, the intergovernmental panel on climate change, the UN's elite scientific handpicked scientific star chamber of climate science and the, uh, the source of all truth. Uh, regarding climate change. And we spoke to Tony Heller, who is a, a great climate scientist in his own right, just a couple of weeks ago on this program and uh, gave us a nice little crash course on some of the big talking points that are quite frankly wrong and not really science-based. But where we're at right now in terms of this issue is that uh, someone like a, a child, who was a child when she came on the scene, like a Greta Thunberg, um, is put forward as an avatar, as a personality, and uh, they're they're repeating things, and they're the sort of they're holding the conch of truth, to use a Lord of the Flies analogy. There, they're holding the conch of truth, and they're repeating it to us, and then 
it's our duty then to repeat that propaganda to everybody else, to get everybody to believe that there's an impending crisis, that the, the sea levels are rising, that climate change is out of control, that we've passed a tipping point, and it's almost too late for humanity, but we might as well give it a try anyway because we're all going to die. We're in the midst of the sixth great extinction, extinction rebellion, etc. That's kind of where they've whipped everybody up at the moment, especially the young generation, very much taken with this story, with this mythology, which something which I call an end times eschatological narrative, like you have in the Bible, like you have in the Quran, uh, like you have in the Torah, in all of the great religious texts, you have an end times narrative. And so as people drift towards the Dawkins atheist path, where their, their, their prophets are now, you know, Richard Dawkins and Malcolm Gladwell, and other prophets of doom, Al Gore, Greta Thunberg, the latter day Joan of Arc in the climate wars, we're hardwired for that end times narrative. You can't just strip it out. We are hardwired for these types of narratives, this type of mythologies, these types of stories. We're human. And so the atheist end times narrative at the moment is climate change. Okay, sea levels will rise, we'll all be underwater, where we should be already if we listened to Al Gore 20 years ago, but actually that didn't happen, so they just moved the date along. So one of the great people who's been campaigning against this um, over the years, this, this rhetoric, this propaganda, uh, and government overreach is Mark Moreno. He is the editor-in-chief at Climate Depot, well-established website. He's also the creator of two great documentary films uh, and other films as well. He's worked on uh, but Climate Hustle 1 and 2, uh, along with some other books he's authored. He's got a new one coming out on The Great Reset. We had a chance to talk to him last week. This whole topic of, of climate change, climate hysteria, you know, one of the best people that we think we can talk to on this is our next guest. It's Mark Morano. He is a editor and founder of climatedepot.com. That's part of a committee for a constructive tomorrow. He's also a host and contributor at TNT Radio. Welcome, Mark. Thank you very much, Patrick, for having on. Happy to be here today. You know, it's great to talk to you. You know, I've been following your website for a very long time. <laughs> That's how long you've been at it, Mark. It's been an incredible uh, effort, a Spartan effort on your part and so many others uh, to raise awareness on this subject. The first thing I want to ask you, Mark, is um, you know, when you when you embarked on this journey to kind of help people get to the truth on this issue of global warming and climate change, how long did you plan to be in it, or at the time? How long did you envision that it would take to turn the tide? And also, is do you, do you think the tide is turning? Well, that's a great, all great questions. Yeah, I mean, my relationship, first of all, the reason I'm so passionate and get involved in global warming is because I've always been passionate about environmental issues. I you know, was raised during the Reagan era, actually volunteered on Reagan's 80 campaign. I always said I was a Republican except when it came to the environment. So I was always worried about endangered species, the Amazon rainforest deforestation, and losing trees. So one of the things when I realized, and it wasn't until the early 90s, and it was actually around the time of the Rio Earth Summit that I started reading up on all this, I realized that you know they were exaggerating and outright lying when it came particularly to deforestation. I remember hearing about the Amazon rainforest. Anyway, years later, I did a documentary on the Amazon rainforest called Clear Cutting the Myths. 
And it turned out for every acre of rainforest cut, 50 were being regenerated. And I really felt like I was, I was duped on the, on the, on the uh, rainforest issue, the, uh, save the Amazon and all the environmental hysterics. I even interviewed people in Brazil, scientists who threw down the guidebooks. This is nonsense, BS, BS, cursing, like all the lies. You know, this was during the height when Sting had his rainforest concert and the National Geographic and Hollywood was doing the risk before global warming scare. Uh, I mean, really before the global warming scare caught on. This was in the 90s, late 80s and through the 90s. Well, anyway, so by the time global warming came along, I was already skeptical, but I, I went and worked. I, was start, I started as an investigative reporter for uh, a cybercast news service, an American investigator, did a little bit of climate on that. And then I went to the U.S. Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, and at which time uh, I stayed there for several years. And then I came out and started Climate Depot. But your question was, how long did I think I was going to do it? I don't know. I mean, I guess uh, on both sides of this issue, skeptics and the climate fear pushers, people seem to always believe that, that you can actually that – that victory is just around the corner. So I think when I started this, it was during the time when Obama's cap and trade failed and then right after Climate Gate hit. If you had asked me then, I would have said, oh, my gosh, this is sea change. We're going to win this. But you can't really easily win something that's decades in the making with funding – academia, uh, the media, establishment, and deep government bureaucracies and international organizations like World Economic Forum, United Nations, and World Health Organization pushing a climate scare. So to answer that, ask that question now, I'm actually, you know, I'm pessimistic and have been very pessimistic for years that we're going to fight this, even under Donald Trump. I was disappointed in Donald Trump's efforts in a lot of ways. He did a lot of great things on it, but not enough. So to answer your question, I think we're in for the fight of our lives, and we're seeing it right now in the world. This whole thing is a result of an ideology being imposed on us to save the planet, and that's why we have energy restrictions. So. No, no. It, to, <laughs> yeah, well, for me, it's really come alive, uh, Mark, and for so many people, this issue is it's no longer a kind of a side issue that's kind of a distant threat or, you know, an encroaching threat. It's actually a central part of everything that we're seeing right now and the the economic turmoil that we're seeing, uh, the sort of deindustrialization that might result from the sort of calamity that uh, you know Germany's facing as an example but the United States as well and the pre the the current president uh, Joe Biden I mean the stuff that he's saying is so extreme um, and I, I honestly it makes it makes uh, Barack Obama seem like a moderate um, in comparison he, he really was but what what the importance of Obama is he laid the foundation and the groundwork for this um, Remember, uh, President Obama actually tried the old-fashioned way. He actually tried through democracy. When he was first elected, he tried to get a cap-and-trade climate bill through the House and Senate. He failed, and he finally got it through the House. And after you know, they voted no, and then he rammed it through. Nancy Pelosi bribed members. They finally got the vote, right? And this was in 2000. Uh, Nah, gosh, my mind's off. Either 2009 or 2010. I believe it was 2009 in June. And then what happened? Then the, the bill moved to the Senate, but people started paying attention to it. It got so bad, this climate bill, that like nine Democratic senators signed a letter saying they would not support it, effectively killing the bill. Among those were very liberal people from you know states like Michigan and Minnesota. Al Franken was one of the liberal Democratic senators who wouldn't support Obama's climate agenda because of the impact on his state economically. So 
what happened was Obama spectacularly failed with a Democrat president, Democrat Senate, and Democrat House. So what did he do? He moved to what I call the Chinification of America, bypassing democracy. And so Obama started through executive orders, through the EPA, through just basically regulating it in the bureaucracy. He was not going to take no for an answer. So he started all that and just set up. By the time Obama left, it was a pretty good framework of a nightmare for American energy and economy. But what happened? Donald Trump came in and within about eight months, literally reversed everything President Obama had done, uh, mostly. I mean, there, it, there was still, but then we ended up unleashing American energy in a way that had never been done to the point where it was the first time since Harry Truman was president. We had more energy production than consumption, more energy exports than imports. We were not just energy independent, we were energy dominant. We had cheap gas, lowest Hispanic and black unemployment, booming economic growth. It was like the golden era, right? And then Donald Trump gets duped by the lockdowns. The lockdowns come from COVID and that crushes the economy, dooms Donald Trump's reelection and gives us Joe Biden. And of course, the lockdowns were nothing more than a version of, uh, than, uh, of the climate agenda had been trying for decades. All the same things, you know, planned recession, stay at home orders, limited travel, all to reduce emissions, except this time we were fighting a virus. So the environmentalists got very excited about that. But anyway, to answer your question, again, I'm giving you long-winded answers, but yes, in short, Biden is much worse than Obama, but the difference is Obama would have been this bad had he had a third or fourth term. It's just that uh, Biden came in not even with any pretense of democracy. They had a Green New Deal introduced in Congress, but there was absolutely no vote scheduled, no hearings, no town halls, no legislative uh, timetable to get it passed. They didn't need it. They don't need no stinking vote of Congress. What Biden did, and he learned this from Obama, but he took it on steroids, every cabinet agency of the federal government of the presidency, executive branch, became a climate agency. That means the, the Department of even Homeland Security, the Department of Treasury, the Department of State, the, uh, the Energy Department, the Interior Department, every single department implemented through the executive bureaucracy, climate rules and regulations. Every spending bill came out as a version of the Green New Deal. Every executive order was designed to shut down every aspect of American energy. And the most important thing Biden did to create the situation we're in, using the Treasury Department with Janet Yellen, combined with environment social governance happening in the corporate government uh, you know, uh, what would you call it? Collusion that has created uh, the defunding of the fossil fuel industry to now there's no way you can even, even now you'd figure all these investments and people would be pumping and increasing our energy because they're going to make a lot of money because there's shortages. No, they're saying they can't find investors because the rates are higher. The, the banks are defunding it because it's not good for the climate and under the new woke rules. So this is how you destroy not only America's economy, America's energy dominance, and our national security now. We are, we are just teetering on this. And you know, we have two more years, two and a half more years of President Biden's administration. And, and during, during lockdowns and COVID, Mark, um, what you mentioned there is, is really important because um, also the demand uh, for uh, petrol 
uh, it dropped for gasoline, dropped in fuel um, because of lockdowns and so forth. So the industry had to basically make adjustments because you remember when the when the price just the bottom fell out of the price a few years ago because they're all front loaded. All the oil companies they're paying people to take the oil, um, and they they lost a, a huge amount of money the industry during that time, and so that set up for what looks like the perfect storm. But my question is. Um, is this a perfect storm by accident or is this a perfect storm by design? Because what we're seeing coming out of Davos and the World Economic <laughs> Forum and these sort of grand plans, um, it, it seems to be all too perfectly arranged, Mark. Um, I just want your opinion on that. Well, yeah, first of all, you're absolutely right about the lockdowns. You had over 100 major oil companies and smaller ones go out of business. The other ones consolidated. The other ones froze everything. So there was all these supply chain issues. It was insane. The whole idea of a lockdown was bonkers, first of all. And I, I want to mention that. I mean, this was the World Health Organization. Largest single donor outside of the United States government is Bill Gates. Mm. China is, is literally picked the guy Tedros to lead it, the head of the World Health Organization. And we were told by the World Health Organization in January, February, March of 2020, if you want to know how to handle the virus, look at what China's doing. Lock people in your homes. A authoritarian, tyrannical. And so America fell, and sadly, under President Trump. And I write this in my new book, The Great Reset. The greatest blunder of any modern president in the last 50 plus years was Donald Trump's decision to cede control of our government to Fauci et al. in the health community, even for a few weeks like he did. It was probably about five or six weeks total that he totally ceded, but he signed that emergency declaration on COVID, which he never should have done, just like the 9-11 emergency, just like uh, the history of emergency decrees going back to the Roman Empire. They allow abuse of power, centralization, bypassing of democracy. Donald Trump will always rep his entire legacy will be sullied by that one decision. And it was actually an absurd point in the pre Trump presidency where uh, Larry Kudlow, his top economic advisor, was asked, and I put this in the book on MSNBC or CNBC, actually the business network, when is the economy going to open up? This is the end of April in 2020. And he said, well, I can't answer that. That's up to the health people, the doctors. Hmm. I mean, here you have the president of the United States, top economic advisor, saying he doesn't know when the economy's. It's up to Anthony Fauci at all. There was the issue. So, again, I'm sorry. I'm very long-winded. That's reason. okay. <laughs> I'm trying to give you the background. So your question is, um, is this planned? Well, I don't know that it has to be planned. And I, 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 think I quote Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in the book, who, in my new book. And he actually just says, I don't know if it was planned or not. And that's actually irrelevant in some ways because it's all about opportunity. They're opportunistic parasites waiting for the right moment. So just like in the climate debate, a hurricane, a flood, a drought, a wildfire is a perfect opportunity to push. This is a new normal. This has never happened. This is unprecedented. It's all lies, by the way, because on every metric, extreme weather is going down. I don't think that COVID was planned in that regard. I think it's hard to say because we don't know what where, you know, that lab situation. But what I'm saying is for 10 years, and I document this in the book, everything from John Hopkins University, the, the World Economic Forum, Harvard Medical, other groups, they all did pandemic planning, and they were really eerily similar to what we saw there. So the response was planned. They were just waiting for the right catalyst. So when, I, when you say, is it planned, I just want to be clear in my new book, The Great Reset, the, about the permanent lockdowns that they're trying to impose. I'm not arguing that they 
release this weapon, this bioweapon of COVID in order to impose a great reset. I'm saying they waited, waited any opportunity and they exaggerated the danger of COVID by an order of magnitude of 100 times or so uh, in order to achieve this. And if you go back and look at all these pandemic plans that they had for the pandemic, uh, the, the, the uh, virtual runs that they did and the dry runs, they were talking about shutting down the internet in 2019, 2010. There was one talking about lockdowns, mask mandates, talking about authoritarian crackdowns on the population. They were drooling at just waiting for the right moment, getting everything in place. So when COVID came along in March 2020, what they did is they did the same thing they do in the climate debate. They came up with very scary virus modeling showing Spanish death tolls exceeded millions dead unless we do what China did. And the same thing in the climate debate. When current reality fails to alarm, you make scarier, scary predictions. That's why polar bears, which are at historic number highs, they can make an endangered species and claim they're endangered because a computer model prediction of 100 years from now shows that they could go extinct. Same thing with the virus. They did a scary model. They terrified world leaders. It cut across party and ideological lines. That's the key here. Five decades, they tried to scare the public on overpopulation, global cooling, deforestation. You always got a segment. They never could get the whole thing and get anything really significant passed, especially in the climate agenda. But lo and behold, a virus comes along, scares pretty much the hell out of everyone. They got what they wanted, which they had been planning for for at least a decade. They got China as the model, and they imposed this upon the world, and they actually claimed the two weeks to flatten the curve, worst idea ever, because no politician is ever going to then lift it after two weeks because they'll be blamed for any potential death. And they literally destroyed decades of economic growth. They hurt the poor, harmed that, the greatest transfer of wealth from poor and middle class to the wealthy, creating a new billionaire every 30 hours under the lockdowns. Uh, it created... Um, you know, health catastrophe, delayed cancer treatments, psychological depression, suicide increase, drug addiction, children's learning, children's development, kids on, you know, 300% increase in kids who couldn't, uh, wearing masks in school, couldn't have language development. I mean, you can go on and on. This was a catastrophe of human standards. But here's the kicker. And this is, and I'm sorry if I'm talking too much here. If you, if no, no go ahead. Go ahead. It's okay. Well, sorry, here's the kicker. The climate activists loved every minute. I don't know if you ever watched the show Get Smart. They'd be like, oh, you're going to be going in facing danger. You're about to die. And loving it. Well, everything <laughs> just mentioned, all the horrors that they were, that this brought about, the climate activists drooled at it. And I have two chapters in my book on this. Here's the key. They looked at this and didn't say, oh, what a catastrophe. We can never do it. They said, if we could do this for a virus, we can do it for the climate. John Kerry said, that's parallel between COVID and climate are screaming at us. And this developed to the point where today, Patrick, I can tell you that Harvard Health, Journal Nature, uh, every peer-reviewed publication, of 230 medical journals have all come out and endorsed the idea that COVID lockdowns are the template for the response to climate. We have Democrats in Congress, Democrats in the Senate, led by Chuck Schumer, urging President Biden to declare a national climate emergency a la COVID. This would give governors extraordinary executive power. Well, what would they do with this power? They could ban driving of, of, of your vehicle, your private vehicle, on odd even days under a climate emergency. They could limit gasoline. They could control your thermostat. They could limit your energy bills. They could limit your flying. We already have proposals in Europe. Uh, 
where you can't fly. Uh, if a flight's too short, you have to take a bus or a train. They're not going to allow short flights because they're bad and not worthy of the climate. We have people under a climate emergency proposing flying only when it's morally justifiable, determined by government bureaucrat. You can see where this COVID opened up the world and accelerated the pace. And just keep in mind, every environmental scare since the 1960s, all the ones I mentioned, overpopulation and resource scarcity and the global cooling. I have a whole chapter in my book, Green Fraud, all had the same solution, which essentially all resembled the Green New Deal slash COVID lockdowns. Exactly the same solution. In fact, you could just overlay them and it's pretty much the same thing. And, you know, Ursula von der Leyen, the uh, unelected uh, I, I'm not sounding flippant there. She, the unelected head of the European um, Commission, she she remarked, Mark, recently that uh, we have to thank uh, Vladimir Putin uh, for uh, initiating the uh, move to green energy uh, policies. She literally said this. I, I missed that one. I had to find that one. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't surprise me. They see this as the greatest opportunity. Continue. Sorry. No, it, it's more or less the same thing. So, I mean, based on what you're describing here, that's a- any opportunity, um, any any crisis or any calamity, any opportunity to drive the agenda uh, forward, um, they will absolutely leverage it. And it doesn't matter if it's not related or it doesn't matter if it's, it's actually their policies that are initiating the problem. Um, certainly the, the, the sanctions um, seem to have been an own goal um, against Russia, but th- but it didn't start there. It started long before that um, for all the reasons I think that, that we described before. But climate lockdowns, I mean, can you imagine what a nightmare? I have, again, two chapters devoted to just this idea, the parallel, the COVID climate connection. Here's what you need to know on the climate lockdowns. A Gates, George Soros, Bill Gates-funded professor in Europe did a publication warning of the coming climate lockdowns unless we adhere to their strict agenda. And they, and it's their phrase. They love the idea of a climate lockdown. That's not made up by climate skeptics. That's actually used by the Gates, by the establishment itself. This is a very deep movement. Academics in Australia have already announced, done a study right after COVID wanting to add climate change as a cause of death on the death certificates. Now, <laughs> I'm not making it up. It's completely, this is completely serious. Once you do that, you can have now a CNN, MSNBC ticker of daily climate change deaths. Now, keep in mind, oh, first, over the last hundred years, what number do you think climate change deaths, what percent number do you think climate change related deaths have declined in the world? Or a weather, weather related, weather related deaths, right? Or climate, however you want to define yeah, it. Yeah. Related to the climate, whether it's a you know, storm, any kind of storm, flood, hurricane, tornado, 99% drop since the 1920s in, in climate or weather-related deaths. Forget that. They're projecting all this horror. So they want to add climate change as a cause of death on death certificates. That's point one. Point two, it's a whole group of doctors in Canada. The first case, this was last fall, the head of the emergency room at a uh, – uh, uh, British Columbia Hospital, not just some intern or some student activist, but the head of the emergency room clinically diagnosed a woman who had heat exhaustion as the first patient in the world suffering from, drumroll please, climate change. And so we have doctors that are going to be prescribing climate change as, a, as your condition, death certificates that are going to reflect it. 
Bill Gates has said the death toll from climate will far exceed anything from COVID. The World Health Organization has declared climate change the greatest public health threat. And here, I'm not finished. This is the icing on the cake. This is the ultimate. This is the most recent development. Harvard, other scientific journals, and major media outlets and other studies, including things like Rolling Stone are getting in the act, the Washington Post, are claiming that unchecked climate change will lead to more COVID-like viruses. So here's the kicker. If you don't support the Green New Deal or the UN Paris Agreement or carbon taxes, you're a grandma killer because there's going to be un- un- unbelievable amounts of future viruses caused by unchecked climate change. This is the ultimate. They know climate change can never stand the way COVID did. Climate change was never as effective. So they're merging climate into the COVID debate. This is what I argue in the book and I present the evidence. Climate is now a subsidiary of a virus scare. It can no longer, they realize how inadequate climate was all those years. They're never gonna lose the virus scare because that scares everyone. And now climate is part of COVID. If you don't take care of climate, COVID gets worse. And now, by the way, Biden's uh, climate czar, domestic climate czar, uh, Gina McCarthy, Obama's former EPA director, she came out and said that anyone now, she's work urging big tech, and we know the Biden White House has a lot of traction with big tech and the corporate government collusion, urging them not just to shut down climate deniers who deny the science, in their words, but anyone who denies the solutions that they propose. If you're against solar or wind or point out the folly of 4% of our energy production taking over 80% of our energy production, fossil fuel, solar and wind combined only 4%, you are an energy denier and therefore big tech will silence you. So you can't challenge their premise. You can't challenge their solutions. This is how we reach the Great Reset. Yeah, this this is absolutely horrifying uh, on so many different levels. It's just like uh, everything accelerating, uh, everything that we've seen in other areas of, of politics, of censorship, just just accelerating and converging onto this, this agenda. I want to talk about what this uh, wider agenda might look like what some of these triggers might be. Uh, we're here with Mark uh, Murano, and uh, he's also uh, the creator of the film uh, Climate Hustle, among other good films. We'll talk about those films on the other side. I'm Patrick Henningsen. Stick around. We'll be right back. So that's uh, part one of our uh, discussion with with Mark Murano. You know, really enlightening. He's brought up a lot of points. I want to address those uh, in just a couple of minutes. What we're going to do now, we're going to take a break here with TNT, today's news talk. Uh, we'll hear the station messages and come back, and we will continue this discussion on climate. And then at the top of the next hour, uh, we'll play part two of our discussion uh, with Mark Murano on the subject of climate hysteria. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. You're listening to TNT, today's news talk. Stick around. We'll be right back. The midterms and America votes on November 8th. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Jeremy Beck. President Joe Biden's performance has been so dreadful since he took office that many Democratic congressional representatives are now terrified of their prospects come the November midterm elections. On the 27th of June, the Hill newspaper outlined five under-the-radar Democrats who could run for president in 2024 to replace Biden. Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio, Stacey Abrams, Georgia's former State House Minority Leader, Representative Ro Khanna of California, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, 
and Mitch Landrew, former New Orleans mayor. But there is one big problem. All these potential Democratic presidential candidates have demonised carbon dioxide, the gas of life, and they all have a record in supporting economy-wrecking policy to address a non-existent climate crisis. As long as the Democrats stick to this anti-human pseudoscience, they cannot expect electoral success. I'm Jeremy Beck for TNT Radio. Every two minutes, an American is sexually assaulted. The majority of victims know their attacker. It could be your friend, your neighbor, or someone you met at a party. If you said no, it's rape, and it's a crime. This is Christina Ricci with RAIN. Call the National Sexual Assault Hotline today at 1-800-656-HOPE or visit RAIN.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. Brought to you by RAIN and this station. This is today's News Talk and the Voice of Freedom, TNT Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT. Today's News Talk, I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. And uh, before the break, uh, we heard part one of our discussion with Mark Morano. He's also the editor of Climate Depot uh, and creator of Climate Hustle 1 and 2. He's got a new book coming out on the Great Reset, I believe. Um, a very enlightening conversation. Uh, we'll expand on some of the points we made there. But I just wanted to also point out, you know, how long some of the so-called skeptics um, have been on the front lines of this issue, have been fighting this issue pretty much tooth and nail nonstop, you know, for years, for decades, in fact. Um, and, you know, when, when I first kind of uh, became awake, uh, you could say, to this issue uh, was... A friend of mine uh, back in 2005, 2006, uh, who was an environmentalist, uh, dragged me to see Al Gore's film, An Inconvenient Truth, in a cinema in uh, Trafalgar Square. No, it was Leicester Square in London. Yeah, at the Odeon. And uh, I saw this documentary film. It was a full house. You know, everybody was going to see this film at the time. Everyone was raving about it. I suppose that was the circles that I was running in at the time. Um, and so I thought, oh, I'll go see this. And I was taken to see it. It was very, it was very compelling. I do remember it being very compelling, very persuasive. Um, but there was just something that just didn't click, um, for me. And I don't, I don't know what it was, but like whenever I see crowds all basically, you know, in some kind of consensus that this is great. This is the best thing since sliced bread. Um, you've got to get on board with this. Um, when I, when I see that and I see everybody doing that, no one asking questions, um, then I, I do get suspicious. I do get suspicious. I just naturally pull away, uh, and step back from it and want to kind of at least reserve my judgment and know more about it. Now I've always been, very much a, a keen environmentalist. I was educated uh, in a very left-wing system, which is the California state education system through high school and university. So, you know, I was trained um, to be a cog in that political machine. And so I was very conscious of social environmental issues uh, growing up and very appreciative and concerned about the environment, no doubt about that. And I still am. Um, but there was something about this issue that I just thought, I don't know, maybe it was because, maybe it was because the, uh, it, when it took on a kind of a religious uh, zeal to it, 
and maybe Al Gore wasn't the best ambassador for this, you know, from a, for a globalist critique, maybe they picked the wrong guy. Um, you know, at the time, a lot of us were, you know, I used to be a Democrat. I was a card carrying Democrat, uh, from the nineties and early two thousands. And I was very much against the Iraq war, et cetera. So very much against Bush, uh, Cheney, uh, regime. <clears throat> and, uh, but I, many Democrats, a lot of people aren't aware of this. They, they view Al Gore as a kind of a traitor because Al Gore conceded at the 11th hour. He like threw in the towel after the Florida election debacle thing. And there was, there was compelling evidence to suggest that there was a, some fraud going on, uh, in the Florida election. And, you know, that's a national election decided by something like 500 votes, if you can imagine that. So it was a dead heat and Gore threw in the towel and, uh, you know, for, for people that, uh, felt like they, you know, deserved a better fight, um, Al Gore didn't give it, but he was rewarded by making him the kind of global climate czar. And then the more you start researching about Al Gore, his past, his family's fortune, Occidental Petroleum, you realize, well, does this guy really believe in this sermon that he's preaching? And the answer very quickly, you can come to the conclusion that the answer is no. And the bottom fell out of Al Gore's story, and as far as I'm concerned. When I found out that him and his uh, partner, David Blood, their company was called Blood and Gore, believe it or not, <laughs> they founded the Chicago Climate Exchange. And so they're buying and selling carbon credits on this climate exchange. And they got in there, they pumped the thing up, they got all this investments, brought all this money into it, and then they sold it. They sold it right before the cost or the price of carbon per ton collapsed. They got out and cashed in for something like 500, half a billion or something like that. Incredible amount of money they made, blood and gore. And, you know, that, that's when I knew the bottom fell out of this guy's credibility. And I think that happened around 2010, 2009, 2010, Chicago Climate Exchange collapsed. And so this guy was just making money left, right, and center. I mean, you, he could turn, Al Gore can turn a buck. You, you got to hand it to him. That's one thing he does really well. He can turn a buck. So... We, you know, some people have been on the front line of the skeptics uh, movement or whatever. I met a lot of these people in, say, 2007, you know, 2008, at some of the big climate uh, conferences in, in America and had a chance to hear and meet uh, many of these people uh, before many of them were that well-known. Piers Corbin's a good example. He's a solar physicist, brother of Jeremy Corbin known now as just a guy that gets arrested every time he steps out of his front door protesting lockdowns or vaccines or whatever. But I knew him when he was a climate scientist, and that's what he was known for. But he wasn't a household name like he is now in Britain. Uh, certainly with the ascendancy of his brother, it's made him a lot more well-known, and the media used, used, uh, use him as a kind of a pinata to attack uh, what they call COVID deniers. But Piers Corbin had a company called Weather Action, and he would be predicting weather cycles. Now, this is a very valuable service, especially to people in the agricultural industry. Uh, so he, he did very well out of that. He did very well out of that. So um, that's how I knew him 
initially, and there's many others too. Dr. Richard Lindzen, notable climate scientist from Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, and many, many others, ex-astronauts, there's a whole range of of credible uh, scientists and experts uh, who are putting forward a lot of hard questions against the official climate orthodoxy. Um, Weren't getting any media coverage, and so the, the mainstream media I could see really defending this party line. And so my skepticism increased even more so uh, after that. So um, we'll talk a little bit about that. We'll take another. Uh, we'll take another short, quick, short break here with TNT. Uh, and when we come back, we'll also hear from Greta Thunberg, and we'll hear about the sermon that she was preaching, that she was preaching just a couple of days ago uh, on stage at this major music festival called Glastonbury. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. You're listening to TNT Today's News Talk. We'll be right back. We're the pinup boys and poster girls for free speech. We just don't look as impressive as Vladimir Putin shirtless on a horse. Yeah. 24 7, 365. We never stop sifting fact from fiction, misinformation from the truth. From government overreach to the latest on mandates, big tech censorship to propaganda gone mad. Listen to TNT Radio and get the news and views direct from our expert presenters and commentators anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's News Talk. This is TNT Radio. Hi, Australia. There's never been a better time to check up on your health. We have a world-class healthcare system that's easy to access, even when you can't be there in person. Telehealth enables you to catch up with your GP or health professional, and the Australian government has now made it permanently available through Medicare. Show your health some love, face-to-face, by phone or video call. Care for your health. Find out more at australia.gov.au. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. We are the boy band. Your tween made you see. We are the boy band. It's painful concert number three. We are the boy band. We're five and nineteen. We are the boy band. Always singing on key. You love your kids enough to take them to see their favourite band. Love them enough to make sure they're buckled up in the back seat. Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit nhtsa.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Don't want the government to know what you're buying? Use cash. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT. Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Thank you so much for rejoining us. I've uh, just found out I've been fact-checked by the major fact-checkers. What an honor. What an absolute honor that is. Uh, yeah, they've mobilized to fact-check 21st Century Wire's Twitter account for a tweet about Greta Thunberg from Glastonbury. And uh, we tweeted out an image of all sorts of rubbish in front of the pyramid stage uh, and said, uh, pyramid stage at Glastonbury after Greta Thunberg's environmental speech. And you can see all the, the garbage there, the masks, there's probably no masks, not many of them anyway, but lots of trash and, uh, plastics and things like that. So the punters, the message is like, maybe that was an old photo, who knows, but Glastonbury looks like that, like every year, it's an absolute tip, rubbish tip. And so the point is, 
is that festival produces the most amount of superfluous garbage uh, each year. And it's equivalent to what some small uh, cities uh, probably produce in a, a large block of the year. And uh, so what, what's Greta Thunberg talking about? Let's talk about the COVID antigen test, all the plastic in the landfills, the masks all over our beaches, everywhere you look. You see, you see in the last two years, you've seen these masks. That was the point. So go ahead, fact checkers, have your wicked way. You can fact check that all you want. We really don't care. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. The AP. Oh, my goodness. Associated Press hit us with a fact check. That is a badge of honor, ladies and gentlemen. That is a badge of honor. I'll pat myself on the back for that. AP fact checked us. Brilliant. Okay. So back to the climate change discussion. Uh, we, we had part one of our conversation with Mark Morano. He's a creator of Climate Hustle 1 and 2, editor of Climate Depot. He's also got a great show here on TNT. Today's news talk, Mark Moreno's program weekly. You can check out the scheduling there or find him on the hosts list, and you'll be able to click on that and listen back to his past episodes. Very good program. Um, but on this issue of climate change, I was talking about how long people have been on the front lines skeptics. Now, mostly this battle was fought uh, by people who saw themselves, let's say, in a national context, um, United States, UK, or some European countries. You know, the climate skeptics were looking to influence or push back uh, what, what seemed to be technocratic or draconian green legislation within their individual countries. But, you know, back in uh, 2007, 2008, 2009, while it was clear that this kind of emanated from the UN think tank world, uh, a la Marie Strong, uh, the Rio Earth Summit, uh, the Club of Rome, probably the, that, that kind of hatched it, really, is one of the, the birthplaces, it were, of the global warming uh, uh, movement and all the various confabs out of the Club of Rome, mid-70s, I believe. Uh, that's a globalist sort of think tank stroke group. And, you know, we saw this in a national context. So what, what, what we had to do was push back, elect people that had more common sense uh, approach in terms of policy, legislation, maybe less regulation, the whole carbon uh, offset thing is a complete scam. It's a boondoggle. Anybody who's looked at it closely uh, knows that. Um, but but few people could see how this was going to take on such a global scope. Because you have to remember these climate summits like COP21 in Copenhagen. I was there in 2009, December. That's, that's really where 21st Century Wire began was in Copenhagen uh, in 2009. And so you could see how this climate agenda was failing on a global level. They came out of there with no consensus. African countries were felt like they were getting jobbed um, by the Western powers. And this is really about deindustrialization of the third world. And, uh, you know, rich countries could go, go ahead and continue doing what they're doing and just pay some uh, uh, indulgence tax i.e. carbon tax, but people, if they're, if they're positioned correctly, they'll make money out of that, like Al Gore and David Blood, Blood and Gore. But nobody could see it becoming such a well-honed global system as we did since the last two years. And when Klaus Schwab 
and the World Economic Forum unveiled their Great Reset, then you could see how this was tightly tied in to, you could see it coming together. And this would have raised a lot of alarms, at least on the sort of biosurveillance pandemic side. But then came the war in Ukraine. And then it became, uh, that, that to me was the circle complete. Uh, because then you could see this overt pushing, this opportunism, as we spoke with Mark Morano uh, during this first segment earlier in this hour, using every opportunity to le- leverage everything, every opportunity. Uh, to advance this green agenda, whether it made sense or not, whether it makes economic sense or not, uh, they're going to push it through. Even if that means that it's going to cause a lot of uh, pain and suffering, um, but who's going to suffer at the end of the day? It's going to be working in middle class. It's going to be the upwardly mobile class. The elite, the hereditary elite, the corporate elite, they're not going to be hurt one bit. 10% inflation, it's nothing. It's nothing next to what they're netting on their various portfolios and hoovering up uh, property and real assets while everybody else is going bankrupt. It's nothing. 10% inflation. They'll take 15 or 20% inflation. Not a big deal. But for everybody else, it's a, it's a huge deal. So not everybody could afford to uh, pay to heat their small home uh, in, in what would normally cost a brand new vehicle per year. I mean, it's just ridiculous. So clearly there's gouging going on or at least ramping up of costs um, using policy as the trigger, okay? Policy, green energy policies are driving up costs. I reported on this last last year, late summer, early fall on the UK column. We did a number of special segments on this long before Russia launched a military intervention in Ukraine. The, The Ukrainian conflict was just the icing on the cake Okay, this basically made, meant it was open season on fossil fuels. When I say fossil fuels, uh, I'd probably rather say hydrocarbons. Um, to me, that might be a more accurate uh, description of oil and gas, natural gas and oil, hydrocarbons, not fossil fuels. I don't want to get into that debate, but you can go ahead and read some lengthy critiques on that online. But so that's that's the main point that we want to make is really come into view now. It's clear. It's clear. There's a series of events that have unfolded over the last two and a half years. They have made this agenda clear as day. It's now out in the open. Everybody's out in the open now. All the cards are on the table now. Okay, there's no guessing what's going on. So you're seeing all these climate stories coming through. Look at the G7. It's all about climate justice. I'll talk a little bit about the G7 and you know where, where is the actual teeth on the policy? Where is this coming from? And I'm telling you, it's not coming from government. Government has limitations as to what they can do. Look at the Paris Accords. They all signed up to it and not everybody's doing anything with it. Okay, it's a lot of a lot about virtue signaling and showing your vote for the agenda by signing up to something like Paris. But what what in terms of actual changes are being made in terms of consumption, uh, in terms of uh, carbon uh, uh, volumes of carbon that are you know being emitted, emissions and so forth? Not a huge change with regards to the Paris Accords. That's not where the teeth are in this. The teeth 
are at the corporate level. The teeth are the what we call the public-private partnership stakeholder uh, uh, economy and body politic enshrined by the World Economic Forum and Herr Schwab, okay, the corporate side. This is where these things will come. This is where the rubber meets the road for you, the consumer. Okay, you're, that's who you're going to interface. That's where you're going to feel this from, okay, is from the corporate side. Look at who provides your energy, who's, you know, providing the, air, the airplane that you get into when you go to fly to wherever, um, social media, big tech, your banks, whoever your bank is, uh, you're guaranteed they're signed up to the uh, environmental sustainability governance uh, ESG protocols. Okay, this is all happening on the corporate level. Think about that. We'll talk. We'll talk about that in detail uh, in the next hour. Um, but but before we go to break, um, I'll just tell you we're going to be playing this part two of our discussion with Mark Morano, editor of Climate Change uh, on the other side. So we'll, 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 we'll go a little bit deeper into this issue. If you enjoyed part one, you'll, you'll really get a lot out of uh, part two. So we're going to play that as well. We'll also talk about the One Health agenda. And we will, we will be speaking on Thursday. Pretty sure we're going to be able to hopefully book uh, Freddie Ponton, the French researcher and journalist, uh, talking about One Health, the climate change uh, aspect of the One Health agenda. So they're going to package global public health in with climate change because now climate is a global health issue. Okay, So they've managed to bring all these things together, pandemics, climate, a few other things all under this One Health and all-encompassing One Health globalist uh, brand. And all the governments, all the public-private partnership stakeholders, they're all signing on to this. Healthcare providers, everything. So this will be done at the UN WHO level. That's why you got to be worried about the WHO's global pandemic treaty. But yet that tucks in under under the One Health agenda. We'll talk about that in detail uh, in the next hour. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. You're listening to TNT, today's news talk. So just stick around and we will be back after these messages and the news break at the top of the hour. Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT, today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Uh, we're into the third hour of this live broadcast. Thank you for joining us, for coming along with us on this journey, this uh, journey of enlightenment, education, and entertainment. We'll have a, a segment for you in just a minute. Um, we had a, a great opportunity just over a week ago to speak with the editor and founder of ClimateDepot.com. Uh, he's also the creator of Climate Hustle 1 and 2, the documentary films, among many other things, and a book coming out on The Great Reset, and a show on TNT Today's News Talk. Mark Morano 
uh, joined us and uh, we had a great discussion about his work and also just about the whole climate change agenda in general and how it's really come into its own, uh, especially post-COVID. So it's all out in the open now. Is There's no hiding anymore. Everybody knows where everybody else stands, what everybody is up to. Uh, very few of the plans are hidden now. It's all come out in the open uh, just read Klaus Schwab's books, and you can see that he is the spiritual leader of this technocratic movement. Uh, the spacesuit isn't a costume, ladies and gentlemen. That's a uniform. Uh, but uh, here's part two of our discussion uh, on the climate issue with Mark Murano. So, so I'm here talking with uh, Mark Murano. He is the editor and founder of ClimateDepot.com. He's also a host and contributor at TNT Radio. And Mark, you know, before the break, uh, we were talking about this this agenda. You started talking about the convergence of COVID and climate as two crises wrapped into one. And in, in terms of a climate emergency, the, the here's the question. If it's summertime, Mark, so this is like the seasonal ritual now. You start to see a barrage of media coverage and stories about extreme weather events, uh, record heat waves, etc. So w- would it, would an extreme weather event trigger a climate emergency or a climate lockdown or a heat wave or something like this. I'm just wondering what will trigger, what could trigger the climate lockdown that so many of these people that are backing this type of policy as, as a way forward to, you know, save the planet. What do you think the mechanism might be for something like that? I mean, I think the first one would probably be a bad hurricane, a tornado outbreak, obviously a heat wave. They will use that. Like, for instance, California, they're, they've already announced because of their, by the way, World Economic Forum just announced California is the model for the rest of the world. This is the, the Davos group, their energy policy. You know, California has the most expensive energy and the most insane energy policies started when you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor and did all the virtue signaling. Um, but California, if they start having energy blackouts and shortages, They'll say, they'll say, well, this is caused by extreme heat and our grid can't keep up with this is caused by climate change. And they'll try to declare a climate, they could try to declare a climate emergency just based on the fact that they cut back energy so much that we're facing blackouts, but they'll blame it on the weather. So there's any number of possibilities with that. But I think ultimately what they're going to try to do is Joe Biden is probably, he's a little bit distracted. He's not going to declare any kind of climate emergency or version of it between now and the midterm elections. But after the midterm elections, especially if it looks like they're not going to win in 2024 or they're facing peril, they could declare it early next year or late this year. And once they get that in, they could do such structural and deep-seated things under an emergency declaration. Now, keep in mind, the emergency declarations are phenomenal because they're just so hard to challenge. Look at how, how Justin Trudeau has been able to use them to the point where he can shut off your banking, your bank card. If you even make cookies or bagels for trucker protests, he doesn't like it. He gets the baker and shuts down their bank account. If you give a thumbs up on social media, not only do you get banned, deplatformed, but you can get defunded and stop use of your card. That's the beauty of emergency declaration. So don't ever take an emergency declaration lightly. He's already tinkering around using uh, the you know, War Production Act and these different World War II era things to, to, to mandate more solar power. I mean, it's just nuts what they're doing. It's like a bizarro world. You can't even imagine anything more lack out of touch with reality. But 
it's almost like when you hear Biden speak, that's like the way it is. But there's actually people behind them with a very clear, focused agenda. So this is not a doddering old man. Um, this is a really sophisticated, organized, decades in the waiting movement, waiting to move quickly. So under this climate emergency, what could happen immediately is what the International Energy Agency report, and they shocked me. They came out with a report, and it's not hard. To, it's hard to shock me. This was a group, International Energy Agency. They've always been great with just monitoring energy trends around the world, uh, whether it's you know oil, gas, n- nuclear, solar, wind. They, they're data data geeks. I always saw them as well. Somehow they've been captured, and they issued a report uh, earlier this year that essentially, in response to the invasion of Ukraine looked like the version of a climate lockdown. They recommended all sorts of things, not only raising the highway, controlling thermostats, limiting car travel, odd even license plates, banning driving in cities, everything in that report. I would tell your listeners, Patrick, if you want to know what a a template for a climate lockdown, a climate emergency would be in the United States if Joe Biden declared one, Look at that report, International Energy Agency. It's at, it's at my website. I think if you look up energy lockdown, it'll come up in my search engine at climatedepot.com. That, they lay out the blueprint. Remember, I already mentioned how the pandemic, um, how the COVID lockdowns, 10 years in the making with major organizations from World Economic, John Hopkins, um, and other universities and organizations lay out that template. Well, the template's been laid out, not only in the International Energy Agency, but in other reports too, UK government-funded reports and uh, in, in scientific journals. But those are the reports. The idea is every aspect of your life is going to be rationed, controlled, limited because of this higher goal of trying to change the weather. And one of the biggest proponents I mentioned was Chuck Schumer. He's actually on record, and he's in my film, Climate Hustle 2, saying this, you'll see it in the movie, saying on the U.S. Senate floor that, quote, everybody knows that if we'd done more on climate, these hurricanes wouldn't be that bad. <laughs> really? And Obama's guy um, pushing the cap and trade said, we need this cap and trade bill because we know the storms are getting worse and we know the climate's getting worse. So the idea is these are going to fix it. Now, First off, John Kerry has admitted that even if the U.S. zeroed out our emissions, including Western Europe, including Canada, it wouldn't even affect global emissions because China, India, South America, even Africa, developing world is developing so rapidly. Emissions are going up. Nothing we do would matter. So if you look at the headline at Climate Depot this week, I have, what do they want to do? They want to now go after Africa. There's a whole movement about how Africa can't use fossil fuels because they can't make our mistakes. We made 200 years of mistakes, i.e. the entire last 200 years of wealth creation, industrial revolution, um, and uh, fossil fuels were a huge mistake. This is in the UK Guardian. It's my, it's my headline at Climate Depot. And what they're basically saying is this is the new form of colonialism, except the least you could argue the old form of colonialism brought modernity, brought modern medicine, brought infrastructure, modern sewage, and cleaned up um, a lot of the developing world. Well, this new form of colonialism is one that says you can't have what the white, wealthy Western world had, you people of color in Africa or South America. You can't have it because we made a mistake and screwed up the climate. Therefore, you have to learn from our mistakes. So that's what we're facing. It's immoral. One billion people don't have running water and electricity, and they're literally going to be limiting their development. Uh, it, that's, that was the death knell, actually. You remember the, the Copenhagen 
climate summit cop uh, was it cop 21 i can't remember which cop it was and that was 2009 yes 2009 december the thing that was obama's death knell on that he he came home a defeated man because of the danish text leaks you remember that that leak that came out that said that summit yeah, yeah, he came home to a blizzard, by the way, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the African countries uh, were like, no, we're not, uh, they, they were going to stick them with the cost and then say they can't industrialize. So like literally punishing the third world or African countries. Um, I spoke to one of the representatives there at the time from, I think, from Mozambique. Uh, and he said, look, you know, we, we don't we don't want any part of this, nor do we want any of your financial aid either. Just leave us alone and let us trade and develop. But um, that's a potential pushback there. But the problem is, Mark, um, they have really colonized all of these institutions through the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And so this this ideology is so pervasive uh, amongst the ruling class, even in African countries. Um, not to, Yeah, but go ahead. Uh, directly on point, two things. Um, on African, what they've done, and particularly since the Copenhagen meeting you're referring to, and I go to every United Nations climate. I've been to every single one since 2002. I went to the Rio Earth Summit and then everyone, and I may have missed two in the last 20 years of all these UN summits. So I go there years before we're talking about COVID lockdowns. They were calling they were calling for planned recessions to fight global warming and degrowth. It sounds awfully like the Green New Deal and or a lockdown, but... But anyway, what they've done, the highest participating delegation of countries at these UN climate summits in recent years, and I can document this with the UN reports, are from African nations. The African delegations have the highest attendance rate. Why would that be? Because Africa, and especially when President Obama was president, they pushed this thing called the UN Climate Fund, $100 billion a year. And I interviewed South African development activists who explained this is a fund designed to pay the government leader who is best able to keep their citizens locked in poverty. And so this is going to affect Africa, South America, India. So the idea is it's against his own people's interests, but his administration will get millions annually from the – this is the promise anyway – from the United Nations. They'll be able to build monuments to themselves, enact you know, war chests for campaigns and or control if they're dictators, consult, hand out money to all their uh, cronies. This is how the UN understands it. They realize they're not going to sell people on selling short their nation, but they can bribe people by paying them and, and, and giving, making them personally enriched while they, while they screw over their own citizens. So that was – that's one of the things that the UN, the UN has a great learning curve on that stuff. They know how to manipulate, they know how to get things done in terms of increasing their power. And that's the same, you know, when you're talking any kind of uh, politics and, and anything in politics, it's always, and if politics breaks his promise, it's always going to be the one that's against the establishment's interest. They're, they're always going to keep the promises that, that support the establishment and go against it. So this is the mess that we find ourselves in with this. Uh, climate agenda right now in the in the uh, African development. Uh, so the same thing now is going to be happening. If, if he does declare climate emergency, by the way, it's going to be the blue states that immediately use this. You're going to have people like Governor Newsom or New York's governor. Uh, and then New York's governor, New York's already talked openly about this. Their governor in, in New York City, they're going to be doing all sorts of restrictions. It'd be restrictions on air conditioning, on travel. Um, and it's all going to be for your own good. <laughs> so th this is really interesting what you're talking about here, Mark, because um, you know, we're doing some research uh, recently on the, the new framework 
uh, that all the institutions, what they call um, uh, public-private partnership stakeholders, uh, that goes for the United Nations uh, down to the WHO and the various other little branch uh, uh, outfits that that branch off of the WHO uh, that have to do with uh, things to do with public health or global public health, or the new term is uh, global health security agenda. That's the actual uh, acronym. And it's called One Health. I don't know if you've seen this yet, but it's it's baked into all the language now. And so what it does is it wants to merge the concept of public health, uh, human health and animal health. Okay, you know where this is going. Human health, animal health, and then below that is to prevent zoonotic diseases. Okay, that's the whole... Yes. Uh, the yes. whole theory, it's theoretical because there's very little proven in practice, by the way, despite what most people believe. And then climate and environment is part of the One Health agenda. That's part of global uh, health security. Okay. One health, one economy, one health, one, one. So it's one, net, one this, one that. And this one actually has kind of, it's, it is the, basically the framework you can kind of see how everything drops neatly into this and it's everywhere now and it's been quietly being built since 2015 but now because of covid and because of what we've been through in the last two years all of a sudden it's it's literally shot up and uh, into its ascendancy now and everybody's it's coming off of all the politicians mouths at all these uh, world health summit and so forth so that what what you're saying is is i think coming into structure now uh in in terms of this globalized uh, approach this single approach and you had the who try this whole pandemic treaty which as far as my understanding was they essentially came up short and it was because of developing nations who weren't willing to give up the sovereignty for all the, and of course the Biden administration was pushing for more and more control. They, you can see again, you asked what things will look like. Look at what this WHO pandemic treaty, their model for their vision of what they wanted. They wanted it to be where Tedros, the head of the WHO, World Health Organization, could on his own declare a global public health pandemic. They could also have any Gates-funded experts affiliated with World Health declare a Gates, um, a, um, a World Health pandemic and or you know, some kind of a health emergency. Once that goes into effect, they would then have control, whether it's mask mandates, vaccine mandates, travel bans, lockdowns. That's the world in which they want to live because they believe at its core, people say, well, why do they? It's about power. It's about ideology. They believe people left to themselves uh, will essentially destroy the earth, create inequity, impose white supremacy, cause racism, create a climate crisis, that we are the unwashed masses that need every aspect of our life managed, controlled, planned, and it has to be approved by a bureaucrat. This is literally the world which we face in just the last two years. It was always a threat, you know, going back to Woodrow Wilson with the uh, with the uh, you know the bureaucratic state, the administrative state running our lives, and we'd be supposedly happy as plum. But because of COVID, because of the crushing of the economy, and because of all the chaos happening now, that's the thing. The chaos happening now. Uh, Vladimir Lenin in the Tsarist Russia was phrased, and this I've looked this up and have two sources for it. It was either worse is better or the worse the better. Their goal at this moment, when I say they, I'm talking about World Economic Forum, the United Nations, the World Health Organization, progressives. Their goal right now is to collapse the current system and then 
the worse it gets, the better, because it just means more and more people will be dependent on government intervention to save us. And whether that, you know, I always say to people, oh, I will give up my SUV. I'm not going to give up my internal combustion engine. It doesn't work that way. You're not going to have a say. The automakers who sell you your car aren't going to have a say. Nicholas Stern at the World Bank about a month ago announced that he wanted to stop all financing, global World Bank financing, for internal combustion engines. Once the global financiers and the corporate powers get a message like that and they all get on the same page, guess what? The internal combustion engine isn't going to be available at your local showroom. At your, and they're, they're going to keep getting – but it's beyond just internal combustion engine. There are now open calls to ban the private ownership of vehicles. Now, mm-hmm. in my book and in my speeches, I do, I do PowerPoint after PowerPoint, and I present all the evidence. Uh, it's not. It's, it's the transport secretary in the UN has called for this. Uh, it's, it's baked into all these different reports. They want to limit that because they consider that one of the great evils of the planet and also just a freedom. The idea they want to keep everyone boxed in. If the whole idea of the Great Reset by the World Economic Forum is you'll owe nothing, you'll be happy, everything you want will be delivered by drone. Now, think about that. You don't have to go anywhere because it's all coming to you. You won't own anything, but someone's going to own it. You'll be paying rent. Uh, and this is their vision. They say you won't eat meat will be a rare treat. The world, U.S. will no longer be the world's superpower. When it comes to the whole meat agenda, the whole food agenda, people say, oh, I'm not going to give up my hamburger. Well, guess what? Who, guess who's the largest single landowner of farmland in the United States? Bill Gates. Now, Bill Gates' agenda is pushing fake synthetic meat on the world. He's now, he now has a lot of leverage. But don't worry. If you're worried about Bill Gates getting a monopoly, don't worry because guess who's right behind them? China is now by trying to get a land monopoly of U.S. farmland as well. So they're also pushing World Health Organization and the uh, World Economic Forum, United Nations. They're pushing insect eating as a major thing. So they're trying to make meat expensive and rare. This is in the U.N. report. 2019, they did a big agriculture report, literally laid out. They wanted to make meat eaters Treated like old smoking sections in restaurants where you sort of, uh, you know, you castigate the smokers to a small section by the bathroom. That's what they want to do with meat eaters. And they actually openly call for anything you can do to make meat more expensive, thus less affordable, thus less consumption. What a better way than right now with inflation, energy, chaos, supply chain, uh, meat processing plants being burned down. This is the world in which we live right now, Patrick. Yeah, and also when when COVID uh, early on, the media reports that COVID outbreaks in meatpacking plants. I saw the same with monkeypox uh, when they they launched that pandemic last month. So yeah, there's definitely a there's some kind of concerted uh, agenda there. J- j- we got a couple minutes left, but I just want to ask you a couple questions. First, I want to talk about your film uh, if, as well. But what what do you think the ideology is? Because uh, some people say the ideology is technocracy. Technocracy meaning we have identified the problems and only we can provide the solutions, follow our instructions and our system, and we'll deliver you the solution to the problem which we've identified. In this case, it's climate change. Is that really is that really the thing, though? Behind that is, do you think overpopulation, that kind of obsession with the Malthusian uh, well, I, huge, yes. Go ahead. Huge, go ahead. Yeah. German climate advisor and others, uh, and I've interviewed him, Hans Schulenhuber. I've interviewed him at UN Summit. They believe that the carrying capacity of the earth is 1 billion people. What do we have? 8 billion, 7.5 billion now? I can't remember the exact number, something like that. So they want to eliminate 
six billion plus people in order to make it sustainable on earth they're open Bill Gates at a forum with featured Al Gore saying that we need ubiquitous fertility management in Africa because Africa is projected to have more people than China and India by 2050. So you have a white, wealthy Western politician lamenting that there's going to be too many people of color in the next few decades. So we need to manage their fertility. I think at its core in the technocracy, I think it's, it's that ruled by experts. These people actually believe that you're smarter, you're more educated. And I liken this, think of your kid wearing, being, you know, if you go send him to public school, private schools, some of them did it. A lot of private schools did it too. Send him to school, they had to wear a mask, right? Or socially distance, or some of them required vaccine. If you were a parent and you complained, the school board would come back and say, well, wait a minute. This is what the public health experts recommend. Do you have a degree in epidemiology? Well, no, I'm just, oh, do you have expertise? Do you have a position in the government where you study the latest? Ed-? Well, no, I don't. Well, you're just a parent. You're a rube. You're a redneck from rural Kansas. What do you know about whether your kid needs a mask or not? We are keeping you safe. We have the best and brightest working on it. That, I think, is at its core the appeal, the non-ideological appeal, if you will, of the of the average government bureaucrat who gets into this and government worker. Um, in, in a sense, it's an appeal to this vision of life. I guess it's ideology, but that's a big part of it. And that's what William F. Buckley once said, and when he ran for mayor in New York, I believe, it was like 1966, he said he'd rather be ruled by picking uh, you know, any random names, 10 random names out of the New York City phone book than he would be by the entire leadership of Harvard University. And that's the gist. It's very, be very afraid. And this goes back, and I trace it back in the book to Woodrow Wilson. It goes through FDR, this whole progressive movement of the idea of ruled by the administrative state, ruled by experts who know better than you, because if you're left to your own devices, like I just said, you'll create the climate crisis, you'll create inequity, white supremacy, racism, you'll create a climate emergency that we, they can't allow that. But I don't want to leave completely negative. People say, after I talk, people are like, well, wait a minute, is it all over? I'm like, yes, it's time to gouge your eyes out and give up. But <laughs> it's really not. Here's why, the, the optimism here, I, I do want to just say something optimistic. It's been great to see the pushback. In my book, I detail Loudoun County, Virginia, as essentially the shot heard around the world. It was, it was a small band, began as a small band of teacher and parents protesting the local school board in Loudoun County, Virginia, outside of Washington, D.C., whether it was critical race theory and the mask mandates and all the COVID theater that they were imposing. It got to the point where parents were being arrested. They were shutting down the school board meetings. They were canceling them. There were police. There was national coverage. They became the heroes. What happened was that spurred a movement that turned a blue state like Virginia with it to, to elect a Republican governor. At the same time, New Jersey almost lost in the deepest blue state, the most Democrat state you can have almost lost the governor, almost lost re-election to an unknown guy with no money who was in the New Jersey House, some like delegate. So what happened was, and this was, and, the, and I quote this in my book, I, I always try to use mainstream sources. When I mention Bill Gates is America's largest farm owner, source is NBC News. When I mention uh, that the Democrats actually have a memo and did a survey, it was New York Times that reported this. They did a survey after the Virginia gubernatorial race uh, last uh, last um, last fall in 2021. They did the survey in 2022, but it found that even among the Democrat base, they no longer wanted to live under this new normal, that even the 
blue state Democrats wanted kids unmasked, the, the vaccines lifted and all the social distancing. So what happened was the science changed. You see experts on CNN, Lorraine, what's her name, when, saying the science has changed. No, the political science changed. And the New York Times openly reported this, that they literally shifted it. And then they immediately, this is why New York State, New York City, everyone just dropped vax mandates, kids masking. It all melted away because of that electoral shock begun, what I argue, by the Loudoun County school board parent, school uh, school parents in Virginia who fought back against it. So in the book, I end by saying, and I have a whole last chapter on the great resist or the great reject for the great reset. And the gist of it is this. In 1989, the Berlin Wall fell in Eastern Germany. Was it because the East German government said, oh, 40 years of oppression under the Soviets is enough. Let's, let's end this. It's because the people no longer gave their consent to tyranny. And they literally had had enough and they fought back and they resisted. And ultimately, that's going to be what we need to do here. It's got to be a mass resistance, whether it's, you know, if they try to do a climate emergency, odd, even driving people go out in their car and they risk tickets and they risk losing their car. They can't, they had to fight this at every level. It's got to be, you know, I, I don't even shop at Walmart anymore because the CEO of Walmart is all in on the Great Reset. I try to avoid any corporate chains, retail chains now, because I don't trust any of them. I try to only support small business. I used to not think of 20 years ago, I used to think those people were kooks. They were typically on the left who didn't like Walmart and all that. But I now realize that the biggest mistakes we made as a country, and Ross Perot was the one that was correct in the debate with Ross Perot and Al Gore in 1992 with Larry, uh, Larry King. Uh, he was the one warning about NAFTA and all the free trade. Uh, when that all happened, it allowed China to move in and essentially now we're dependent. And of course, the Green New Deal is all about increasing our dependence on China and Russia and the Middle East as we outsource all of our energy to countries with much lower environmental standards than we do. But it actually perversely increases global emissions because we end up uh, you know, giving it to countries without the technology that we have because we'd lead the world in reducing emissions if you care about that stuff. So I'm very optimistic because I think it's I think the human spirit yearns for freedom. And I think we can fight this. And I think it's odd people like Elon Musk who could play a major part too, at least in the information battle. Yes. Yeah. Well, let me talk. Let's talk about your film before we go. Um, I'm, I'm just looking. I'm ac- actually kind of amused, Mark, at your Wikipedia page for the first Climate Hustle, uh, 2000, this 2016 film. And it says, uh, narrated by climate change denialist Mark Marano, when you see a flippant Wikipedia entry like that, you know that you're absolutely over the target, and uh, it's kind of amusing. But what I love is that they're they're saying the overwhelming what do they call it the overwhelming scientific consensus about climate change. This film rejects that uh, and uh, the impact of human activities on it. So that was the first one. So you you've got a sequel. So tell us about the the new film and your latest book as well. Well, the new film, The Climate Hustle 2, and we just had our broadcast premiere on Newsmax TV last month. So if you check Newsmax, they're going to be rerunning it. Uh, I don't have the latest rerun of it, but it's uh, it, it runs in a two-hour slot. It stars Kevin Sorbo as the host. I'm the climate reporter in it, and it has me all over the place. I'm in uh, at the UN Climate Summit. It's interviewing people, and I'm at Louis XIV Palace, Louis Versailles Palace in France. And we go through almost every aspect of the climate debate. We do through the science, the, the fraud of the 97%. 
That was only 77 anonymous scientists and how one UN scientist said a claim of 97% was, quote, pulled from thin air. It's a design to stop people from challenging it. In other words, the experts know, are you a climate scientist? Then you can't challenge this because 97% of scientists agree. And when the movie goes to how climate is a religion, we have the great uh, clip of the great um, Michael Crichton in there explaining how urban atheists have adopted climate change as their environmentalism, as their new modern religion. We go through all the wacky solutions. We actually feature in there footage of the guy from NYU professor, Matthew Lau, who believes humans need to be shrunk in order to fight global warming, that we need <laughs> psychedelic drugs to make us care more about the climate and the environment. Um, and I go through and we, we show the whole fraud of the UN Paris Agreement. We, they, the gist of it is this. Even if we face the climate catastrophe, everything they propose would have no impact on emissions, let alone the climate. It's a complete con from A to Z. And one of the things I like to do is here's an analogy. The gist of it is this. It's like right now the Biden administration is so happy with what's happening with our inflation and shortages and blackouts and brownouts and skyrocketing energy because this is the chemotherapy. Biden and all of his cabinet are basically saying, wait till you get to the other side. So imagine if you've been diagnosed with cancer and you're in chemotherapy and you're vomiting and you're losing your hair and you're miserable. Keep your eye on the prize. You want to be cancer free. So to these true believers out there, they actually think that this is our chemotherapy and that once this is done, we'll be free of the climate crisis. Once we make that transition to net zero and we have that climate utopia on the other end. The problem is we've been diagnosed by a quack. And even if we had the disease that they claim, their solution would have no impact on the disease. So we go to that. We go into that in the Climate Hustle 2 film. But it's available at Newsmax.com, Newsmax TV. And it's also you can order it from ClimateHustle2.com. You can get a DVD or a digital copy of the film. No, definitely. My new, book, my new book's The Great Reset coming out in August. Not to be confused with Glenn Beck's version. I think my, I haven't read Glenn Beck's version of The Great Reset, but my version uh, is a lot more fun. I open with a quote from The Twilight Zone. I feature copious clips from Bill Maher and his transformation into a rational, incredible, intellectual human being. I also feature uh, Richard Carlin, the old comedian. Um, so I, have a, I've, I try to make mine fun, witty pop culture. It's written as like an idiot's guide to uh, one of those idiot political idiot guide type books. So every, there's little boxes. I lay it all out, make it all understandable. I go through everything from the COVID climate connection to how we followed China to the origins of the Great Reset to how the transfer of wealth to how lockdowns kill to all the progressive left wing people who converted uh, and had eye opening people like Robert F Kennedy Jr., Naomi Wolf, uh, Jimmy Dore, a former um, he's a uh, former Young Turks, progressive liberal reporter, now by my favorite political commentator, Russell Brand. So I think people are going to really, it's really reading, easy, friendly book that goes through and just lays out the case for what's happening uh, to our world and how to fight back. Uh, sounds like definitely a book that uh, I want to get a hold of, and I'm sure a lot of people want to get a hold of that. Definitely something to have by your side to arm yourself with some some knowledge and information in this this epic fight, Mark. Uh, this fight that you've been uh, you've been waging for a very long time. And in the end, I just want to say thank you very much for joining us and for your time on this, Mark. Uh, much appreciated. Thank you, Patrick. I appreciate it. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That is Mark Morano. He is the editor, founder of ClimateDepot.com, also a filmmaker and a host and contributor at TNT Radio. Thank you very much uh, for joining us, and uh, we will see you on the other side.
That was our discussion with Mark Morano. What a powerful interview. That was part two. The first part was in the previous hour. Uh, we'll have all of that up on the archive after the show, but a really, really amazing conversation. I mean, I've, I've covered this issue on and off uh, really for you know almost the last 15 years. And that's, that's, that is among, if not the best uh, interview that I've taken part in on this topic. So a real tour de force by Mark Morano, and again, pointing to his books, his films, his show on TNT. Uh, we'll continue to do that uh, as time goes by, because guess what? This, inner, this issue is not going away. This issue is not going away. It's only getting more intense. So, you know, the uh, information war, well, we're all engaged in it one way or another. And uh, well, uh, let's take a short break here with TNT, today's news talk. And we'll be right back after these messages with the station for final commentary on this issue of climate change. And I will uh, uh, hopefully be zeroing in on what they've been saying this week at the G7, what it's going to mean in terms of policy, what you should be looking for forward uh, going forward uh, we'll be right back after these messages jeremy now on tnt radio this is a very interesting way of enslaving a lot of people they just deem something illegal they just put you into the red zone they say that you now biohazard you you might not be able to fly because you've exceeded your carbon emissions limit what really worries me here is that there's this weird kind of outsourcing of of individual intelligence to centralized intelligence um, and I cannot see the upsides to this other than really really good marketing uh, and it's, it's quite scary do you agree with me on my assessment about the dangers of digital ID and central intelligence absolutely yeah uh, in our magazine your know, covert action magazine is devoted to exposing you know uh, pr- providing you know scrutiny and, and exposure of the yeah. abuses of intelligence agencies and this is a you know, worldwide phenomenon that you know Orwell mm-hmm. would be rolling as great but what's going on today Jeremy Nell and germ warfare on today's news talk radio TNT. In many countries around the world, medical care is scarce. Countless millions have no access to safe surgery. Mercy Ships is there to help. Mercy Ships provides free surgeries for the thousands of those who are waiting for surgery at each port. Mercy Ships is bringing services to countries that would otherwise never be able to access those services. Find out how you can help by visiting our website at mercyships.org. That's mercyships.org. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our help with your water, your air, your food. You're going to need our determination, our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org government has taken our rights and will never give them back unless we make them the voice of freedom is tnt radio welcome back welcome back ladies and gentlemen to tnt today's news talk i'm patrick henningson your host we're cruising into the final segment of the final hour of this live broadcast on tuesday and what a tour de force this program has been so far we played both parts of our uh, interview uh, that we conducted with Mark Morano, uh, the editor of ClimateDepot.com. He's also an author and a filmmaker as well, and a powerful two-part 
interview there and I uh, hope you enjoyed that. And uh, so, you know, we'll wrap up this conversation uh, on, on climate change. There's a few uh, developments that I'd want to point people to, um, especially regarding the recent G7 meeting uh, in Madrid, which just concluded. And uh, so n- normally the, these meetings, these confabs are back to back. And this has just proven to be incredibly convenient uh, in terms of harmonizing uh, policy and more, more so for the propaganda, uh, for the talking points. And so everybody's on the same page. Uh, the media is on the same page. More and more we're seeing that all of these things are being done globally. So the talking points are being formulated and disseminated globally. Uh, certainly, you know anything that's coming out of the G7 or NATO, for instance, everybody's got to be on the same page, and so all the leaders there. So it's it's becoming like kind of a corporate cookie cutout political conversation. Everybody's basically saying the same thing. They're all wearing the same white shirt. They've all got their jackets off. It's just like your global government, you know, so these are just like administrative zones uh, under a global government. The question is who's in charge, who's running the global government at the moment. It looks like it's some kind of a collective arrangement. And we spoke about this before the break uh, in part two of our conversation with Mark Morano. And so looking at the G7, we're, they, they've got to prime the public, you know, so in order to get a consensus, in order to make policy work, you need a consensus. How do you get the consensus? You got to get the consensus via the grassroots. So to do that, you need to astroturf. You know what the term astroturf means? If some of you might know that. If you don't, it's basically fake grassroots, plastic grassroots, astroturf. Uh, a la the Houston Astrodome is the first uh, sporting arena, indoor arena to have sort of fake grass uh, for the baseball team there. Nolan Ryan throwing his 95 mile an hour, 100 mile an hour fastballs uh, in the Astrodome in Houston. Uh, AstroTurf, their fake grass, actually murder on a lot of athletes' knees. Uh, I feel bad for any football players or baseball players had to play on that early on. Now it's uh, AstroTurf has come a long way since then. It's got little rubber beads. It's got a little bit of a bounce, a pushback, sort of like soil and turf. But anyway, you get the you get the picture. AstroTurf is fake grassroots. And so Greta Thunberg is, is, has been a great success, a great astroturf success. Her whole rise, her ascendancy into the consciousness of the, uh, the, the, the social justice warriors and virtue signaling community of the West was uh, incredibly well engineered from the first protest that she had, uh, I believe it was in Stockholm, where she was sitting outside uh, one of the government ministries or something protesting the climate with a a sort of a homeless person's type homemade sign. And it turns out there's a whole PR machine behind that. Her her parents are actors and uh, pop stars. Uh, So this, this was incredibly well scripted. And she was rolled out very carefully. And some of the interests behind her, some of the same green financial interests from the day one, from day one, the green financialization of nature. All of this was outlined uh, in Corey Morningstar. She's a Canadian activist and researcher. She wrote a series on her uh, her blog. One of her blogs uh, is the, uh, I believe, the, the, the Wrong Kind of Green, Corey Morningstar. And it's called the... Uh, the, the, the Greta Thunberg series that she wrote. 
the making of Greta Thunberg or something along those lines, volume one, two, three. And it just outlines her whole, her push. So she was at Glastonbury and she's up on stage. She's not a kid anymore. She's 19. She doesn't look like this sort of meek uh, child that she was marketed as, although she's quite small in stature. Uh, but uh, formerly the, ang- the angry Swede, the angry Swede is not as angry anymore. I think she's she's read that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, and I guess shouting and berating the public, saying how dare you to everybody for robbing her ch- of her childhood, blaming everybody for that, for stealing her future. Uh, that's not going to go very far. That didn't test too well in the focus groups. Uh, although, so yeah, if you're going to blame. If Greta's going to blame anybody for robbing her childhood, she should look no further than her own parents. But that's another story. So here she is at Glastonbury. Let's listen to what Greta had to say over the weekend to a crowd of 100,000 revelers uh, there at the festival uh, in Somerset. Let's listen to this. This crisis of the biggest story in the world. And it must be spoken as far and as wide as possible, as far as our voices can carry, and even further still. It must be told in articles, newspapers, in movies and songs, at breakfast tables, lunch meetings and family gatherings, in lifts, at bus stops and in rural shops, in schools, boardrooms and marketplaces, in the fields, in the warehouses and on the factory floors at union meetings, political workshops, and football games, in kindergartens and in old people's homes, at hospitals and at music festivals like Glastonbury, on social media and on the evening news, on dusty country roads and in the alleys of our cities and towns. So that's that's Greta. Uh, so she just basically listed just about everything. Sorry, I had to cut that short. Um, you know, at breakfast tables, uh, in old people's homes, uh, on factory floors, what else? Football pitches, football games, uh, at markets, in fields. I mean, aren't they doing that already? Aren't they doing that already? That's that's the gaslighting that's been going on. They've been uh, shoveling this climate rhetoric down everybody's throats now for years. And, you know, that's the last thing you want to hear at a football game. No one's talking about climate change. It's not happening, Greta. So th- this whole thing is fanciful continuation of the postmodernists, uh, kind of hopeful, not, not reality-based, uh, there's no room for discussion or the science is settled, we're told. So there's, there's no debate. There's no critical analysis uh, to be had here, according to Greta and the people who wrote her speech. I mean, she's carrying a handful of papers. And so she's reading off a script. I mean, you'd think she's, she should be well, she should be well uh, uh, trained by now. To whereby she could memorize, I mean, how many speeches has this girl done over the years? Uh, now, what's she's going on? She's, is it her fourth year? Yeah, she's going into her fourth year as a kind of climate global icon. You'd think that she could memorize a 15-minute speech. It's not that hard. Maybe an index card, some bullet points, and she could kind of do it extemporaneously. One would think, no, no, she's got to read it verbatim off of an A4 sheet why is that? Because the people that are handling her are scared to death that she's going to go off script. Because I've seen, we've seen her go off script, 
and she had a go at everybody, including her own lobby. And so she's got her own thoughts. She's a bit dangerous in that sense. I mean, I want to see the unchained Greta. I want to see Greta unleashed. I want to see her without the script, just going off on everybody. I mean, that's the Greta I want to see. We saw a glimpse of that, uh, I believe it was last summer. And boy, did that send chills down the spine. I mean, you, everyone saw her at the UN. Uh, it was Trump's last year. I think it was 2019 or something like that, late 2019. And she was at the UN reading that speech. How dare you? How dare you? She's like literally reading it off the the paper. I mean, how disingenuous, but her fans loved it. The political people that uh, like to push her around, use her as a battering ram for their policies. They loved it. Kind of normal people looked at it and said, that's a bit contrived. Uh, that's a bit disingenuous. But anyway, her fans loved it. The Democratic uh, Party, the AOCs of the world, they're all around there in New York at the time. I believe they loved it. But it, it's its a bit disingenuous. So they need to keep her on script. They need to keep her on script. And otherwise, Greta might go off script. And that's the last thing you want. So she's basically saying we need more propaganda. And it's kind of an, it's, it's a desperate lunge. Uh, it's a de desperate lunge, a desperate attempt to revitalize what is clearly a dying, failing uh, narrative. It, it is really losing its hold. You're talking about an end times mythological narrative, which is the world's going to end in 10 years. They said that back in 1990. 2000 came. It didn't end. They said, no, no, no we're going to move that back. 2010 is when that's the point of no return. 2010 comes. Is it no, 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 no? It's 2020. 2020, we're going to reach that tipping point. Gladwell, right? Tipping point. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. And after that, it's too late. We can't come back. We'll be the planet will be in terminal decline, and everybody's going to be under. Florida's going to be underwater. Uh, it's going to be you know it's a day after Armageddon. Didn't happen. It's 2020 came. Got something else in 2020, which was a fake pandemic. But so we got something in 2020, didn't we? Um, so now they're pushing the climate thing back a little further. Now it's 2030. So now we're into the game now. All the chips are on 2030. Of course, 2030 is going to come and it's going to go. And I'm telling you right now, if you're listening to this podcast on the archives in 2030, you'll be like, yeah, he knew what he was talking about. Uh, 2030 is going to come and go and they will push the date back to 2040 2040 no 2035 they might even shorten it to a five-year cycle five-year cycle of doom doom spiral five years uh and then we've all we've got 2050 as a as a backstop you know it's like 2050 could be the backstop you know if uh, there'll be enough of us around by then uh common sense thinkers who knows if we're lucky if we're lucky if we're all lucky we're all still here. We haven't been annihilated by a nuclear holocaust. But anyway, they keep moving the doom date back. Move the doom date back. So the G7, the G7 is trying to find a way to, to, to glue this thing together or midwife it, as Victoria Newland likes to call it, midwife this thing. So they're meeting at the G7 this past week in, uh, where is it, Bavaria, somewhere in the Alps. And... This is interesting how the Financial Times has reworked this. And this is, I mean, I, I could do, every day is a masterclass in propaganda. Every day. Every day. If you're, if, you're, if you're consuming mainstream 
media every day is a masterclass. I could just take, I could find, I could do daily courses in propaganda, uh, deconstruction, dissemination, and just by looking at, I could just sample three mainstream stories of any any subject per day, and just show you how masterfully they do the manipulation. Here's the Financial Times. This is a beauty, actually. I just found this uh, this morning. Global CEOs urge G7 leaders to step up climate action. So by the looks of this, this is interesting. It sounds like uh, global CEOs uh, basically want to save the planet from climate change. And so they're pushing G7 leaders to do more, to do more, to, to roll back the warming of the planet, right? That's, that's what you would think that headline means, but actually not. Companies, uh, including Shell and Bank of America, are calling for clarity and stability. That's very different. So I'm reading the fine print in the article, and as of course, the fine print's always different from the headline. That's called Propaganda 101. And so what, what do the companies want? Now, the CEOs, there's a certain amount of virtue signaling that they'll do publicly. And of course, they're being bullied into signing on. This is what the World Economic Forum's job is, really, is also to uh, entice people with, you know, whatever, to be up there at Davos and then get them to have a public face whereby they have to sign on to uh, ESGs, UN Sustainability Protocols, UN-led type things, Environment Sustainable uh, Governance, ESGs. Uh, and so Bank of America, Shell, oil, of course, the pet, the oil companies are all over it. They love it because they got to kind of keep people from brigading them. And uh, they might even be able to cash in on some carbon credit action. I'm sure the banks are well invested in the financialization of nature. In the future uh, central bank digital currency regime, I'm sure they're well positioned to do well out of that. Uh, but they're basically long for the ride. Uh, the boards are constantly under threat from the mob. Uh, and so they're basically saying they want stability and clarity. What they're saying is we need to know uh, where you're going with the policy so that we can adjust accordingly and that we can survive. So this isn't corporations beating the door down of leaders uh, telling them you know, to do more to save the planet. It's not that. That's the propaganda headline. The reality is they're basically scrambling to try to know what the policies are, where, where the governments are on this, so that they can make adjustments and, and survive, basically. So our politicians don't care about the performance of these companies anymore. It looks like they're pulling the rug out from the system full stop. Okay. And so it's, it's going to be the strong survive at the end of this. Who can afford to put up with all these regulations, ESGs, UN Sustainable Development Goals, and so forth? So here we go. Major global companies are pushing world leaders to step up action to tackle climate change at the G7 summit. Not actually, no, they're not doing that. Uh, they're calling for large-scale carbon pricing and measures to boost demand for clean technology. They're not actually doing that. Uh, what they're looking for is uh, government climate policies that offer the private sector clarity and stability. That's the meat of it. All the rest is propaganda and embellishments by the Financial Times. And by the way, the FT is more sober than any other mainstream media outlets. They're completely off the hook on this uh, with all the green journalists running around. Um, so so th th this is interesting. The, the pressure is coming from... Uh, the government, yes, 
they're creating the AstroTurf movement to get the people to, to be woke and to demand woke things from corporations. But the real teeth in this, who's going to actually make this work, are actually the corporations. Okay, so you know you won't be able to do business in the future without your ESGs. Any of these companies, they'll get locked out. Uh, it's not long now. Not long from now, they'll be sanctioned. They'll be sanctioned. You know, to to do to do, uh, to do trading, to do import export on the high seas. Do you understand? They want to re. Uh, configure the Treaty of the Seas, the UN international law that governs the seas to put climate concerns under the rubric of the One Health Agenda, global public health, merged with climate, and then that's going to govern who's going to be allowed to put a boat in the water and ship containers from A to B. Do you see where this is going? Do you see where this is going? This is another uh, layer of control of the economy globally freedom of movement so we know how this is going to work in terms of airlines with regards to uh, social credit carbon credit uh throttling people's ability to travel so only the wealthy can do it okay we know about that but this is another level think about cancel culture who administers cancel culture it's not government government pressures facebook twitter youtube google to, to cancel or to deplatform people. But at the end, it's the corporations that do it. It's the corporations that do it. That's where the teeth is. So in terms of enforcing your whatever or enforcing this, this new regime, this new green new deal, uh, this new environmentally sustainable regime, it's the teeth is going to be at the corporate level. This is corporativism. This is hardcore fascism. And if you want to go against these machines, you got to go against 50 lawyers and you would just, it won't happen. They are the law onto themselves. Corporate policy rules. The rule of law, ah, that's yesterday. The rule of law, eh, that's just, that's a bit, that's a bit old fashioned. No, this is about corporate policy and it's going to be done globally. That's what we're up against. Anyway, thank you for joining us this week. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And a thank you to Mark Morano for that amazing two-part interview. And again, this will be up on the archives after the show. Thank you to Christian in the first hour. Very much appreciated your contribution, too. And thank you all uh, for listening this week at TNT, Today's News Talk. Uh, we'll have another fantastic program for you on Thursday, same time, same place. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We'll see you there. <music>